Welcome back to Podiatry Today podcasts, where we bring you the latest in foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field. Today we have two guests with us discussing bone grafting, Jeffrey McAllister, DPM, and Michael Dugella, DPM. Dr. McAllister is a fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon and a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons, practicing in Scottsdale and Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Dugella is also a fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon and fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons, practicing in Olympia, Washington. Welcome, doctors, and thank you so much for being with us today. Dr. McAllister, why don't you get us started? So welcome, uh, avid listeners, to another Podiatry Today podcast. We are here today, or tonight, I guess, whichever, uh, whenever you're listening to this, to discuss bone grafting in all sorts of kinds and shapes and sizes. I have an esteemed colleague of mine to get down and dirty and, and talk about what really works and what doesn't. I'll let him introduce himself, but his name is Dr. Dugella. Tell us about yourself, Doc. Yeah, hi, Dr. Mike Dugella. I practice at Washington Orthopedic Center in Centralia, Washington, as well as a location in Olympia. Been out about 20 years and known Dr. McAllister for a long time. We both trained at Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Center in Columbus and collaborate on a lot of things. So some of our uh, opinions are fairly convergent, some divergent. So always enjoy getting a chance to sit down and talk. Yeah, so I'm excited to share this evening with you. And I practice in Scottsdale. We have a lot of, you know, snowbirds that fly down for surgeries, vice versa. Mike and I share patients. Let's just get kind of into it a little bit. I, we've shared a couple patients. There's been a few that have had like non-union complications, not even from us, but it's it's something that we deal with in a sunny climate as well as a not so sunny sunny climate in terms of bone healing, et cetera. Is there is there something Thing that we're missing when we're working up people for bone health. I think you've given me some secrets that I just want want you to talk about it. Some that people might not think of right off the bat. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think we have to look at our patients individually and think about some of the things that may be impairing their ability to heal that we don't always think about. You know, forget vitamin levels and things. I'm talking about just age. You know, as as people age, obviously there's an increased demineralization. There's a potential for non-union or or difficulty healing whether it be fractures or fusions. And so I think that's important. One of the one of the big ones I think that we don't consider very often, particularly for non-unions, is alcohol use. And there's some decent yeah. literature out there, and, and that's something that I think that a lot of us should be thinking more about. A lot of our older patients, particularly in today's environment where they may be lonely, they may be a little um, isolated, particularly with the pandemic going on, not interacting with their family. I've certainly seen in my own practice where people are, you know, imbibing a little bit more than they normally would. And this is something I think to consider. That's true, man. I mean, I think that I agree with you. I think it's something that we don't ask to, we, we ask maybe how many, how many drinks a week you have, but we don't usually uh, pertain it to, we just think automatically of, of tobacco use. And we're starting to mm -hmm. think more. A recent study just came out of, I think it was either double AOS literature or some orthopedic literature recently that that showed that they're just now kind of starting to show that um, marijuana use is actually inhibiting bone health and bone healing and fracture healing, mm -hmm. et cetera, because mm -hmm. that's just kind of like on the wayside right now. We're just, we ask about it. We ask about vaping. It's not even on my new patient paperwork per se. It should be probably uh, maybe if I was in a primary care doctor's office or something, but I think um, you had mentioned to me one at one point about parathyroid, I think you can probably recall that patient specifically, but even in, in sunny climates like mine, you can have poor vitamin D levels 
and calcium levels. And I don't routinely order parathyroid hormone, but I think you've had a couple of patients with that, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's the whole question then becomes, you know, what's the reason for the non-union workup is the standard sort of checking the vitamin levels. Yeah. And one thing being parathyroid hormone. And I've come to learn, you know, a couple of patients who went on to non-union and as part of the metabolic workup noted that they had hyperparathyroidism. And I've come to learn from talking to some endocrinologists that you can actually get a secondary hyperparathyroidism associated with low vitamin D. So it may not actually be a primary thing where, you know, where the, the parathyroid actually needs to be removed. So I think it's, it behooves you to kind of do that as part of your workup and then hand that off to endo and let them figure it out. But um, in our area, yeah. you know, it'd be interesting to kind of compare patients, Jeff, because in our area, we just absolutely get pummeled with the low vitamin D, the vitamin D deficiency. You know, we didn't treat that routinely. We didn't um, sort of even look at it routinely until the last couple of years when I started to realize when I was doing these metabolic workups that the majority of these people, you know, came back with low vitamin D and it was question was, was it because of this? Was it in spite of this? Was it with this? Um, you know, is it just something that happens along with it? And it just was a by the way, or was it a direct cause? You know, there's, I had an insurance company recently deny uh, vitamin D test. It was about a $400 fee to the patient. They were upset and they asked me to write a letter of rebuttal and uh, appeal to the insurance company. As I did a deep dive in literature, it was actually a little bit tough to find high level evidence to support, you know, testing vitamin D um, in bone healing, which is, yeah. is kind of shocking. But specifically for foot and ankle surgery, that's what they wanted the answer to. You know, Alcatanz Reedy published a paper several years ago that showed increased risk of non-union, but there's really not a lot in our literature out there on that topic. So we know, routinely test vitamin yeah. D. I don't know what you guys do down there, but man, I just had a guy from Mexico who came up and he flew up, just strangely sort of showed up on my doorstep and said he wanted surgery, somehow found us on the internet and had some family in the region. And, you know, we test his vitamin D and he wanted a high foot fusion and needed a bunch of stuff done. And he was through the floor I and mean, his vitamin D level was like 12 and he lives on the beach in Mexico. So I, I don't yeah. know, do you find it's low in, in the Phoenix area? Do you run into that a lot? Yes. Yeah. I mean, even if, I mean, we've had, despite having six months of sun or, you know, eight months of sun or whatever, blazing sun, uh, people aren't in the sun during the summer. So it is, um, and people leave town in the winter and well, we do have that problem. Um, it is not routine, but I would say it, it, we run into it frequently. Some of the ortho trauma guys in town um, have, you know, hired on bone health uh, physicians, either uh, MDs, NPs, whatever it may be, but kind of running a full, almost rheumatoid-like um, product that enables them to capture because they do a lot of non-union work and a lot of fracture care that went sour and, you know, revision hips and mm -hmm. all this stuff. And to optimize mm -hmm. these patients, I think it's almost like the the fourth leg of a Ironman, I think about it, there's swimming, running, biking, and the nutrition, people just don't consider that part of surgery. Um, mm -hmm. in, in general, you know, I know, we're, you know, jumping in the deep end, right in the beginning part of this podcast, but I think it's what the nuts and bolts of it is, is we're seeing so all everybody sees complicated stuff. And um, we just need to know how to treat the primary stuff better. So it doesn't become revision complicated, etc. So well, I think it's um, really interesting what you just said, though, about, you know, people, I, I guess I'd never consider that being somebody from up here that's not in that blazing sun. I guess you're completely right. I imagine people are sort of heading for inside an AC and not getting that direct sun. Yeah, I, I, I think the real test would be Cali. 
I think if we looked at Cali, California, I bet they have a lower rate because they're in the sun more. But in, in the sum, I mean, in the summer, people aren't in the sun from June to October. For, I mean, uh-huh. I mean, I'm just talking sitting in the backyard, catching a tan. That just doesn't happen. Uh-huh. Let's talk about the patient that needs a primary. We'll just start with an MTP. Are you doing bone grafting and time limitations and constraints? We could, you and I could talk about this for three hours, but you know, let's yeah. go through like a couple standard surgeries and just do like okay. primary and revision. And what I really want to talk about is some like Evans non-unions recently. And, and I just want to know what your yeah. experience is for kind of yeah, revisions and great stuff. Topic. So yeah, definitely really, really timely for me too, because I'm running into a string of non-unions and Evans. So I'll just say okay. generally to start with, again, I think we have to look at the patients. What's the risk factor? I think we need to think about neuropathy as being a big risk factor. So I, I don't mm-hmm. use primary bone grafting on probably 90% of my surgeries, whether they're fusions or fracture repair sites. Uh, first MTP fusion, I, I can't think of the last time I did a primary graft on there unless it was something short that needed a distraction or there was massive bone loss that I needed to augment or they were highly neuropathic uh, elderly, alcoholic, smoker, some reason. I try not to operate on smokers if I can help it. I know some people say they'd never have a practice if they didn't operate on smokers, but I think mm-hmm. in many ways you're sort of walking into a brick wall when you you know, have a modifiable risk factor that honestly a lot of patients are willing to quit. It's a struggle, but the majority of the people I propose that to quit. So right. generally, there's, they're non-augmented first MTP fusions, and the union rate is very, very high, 95% plus. Right, right. Let's ju- just go down the line. Go to like a midfoot and then like a hind foot, just yeah. generally speaking. Okay. So midfoot, like tarsal metatarsal joint. So uh, first TMT joint, uh, modified lapidus procedure, same sort of thing. I never augment them. I never say never, but generally I do not augment those unless there's, you know, been a previous non-union or some reason to uh, fear a non-union. I think if anything, you're putting potentially a patient at a higher risk unless you're using autograph. Um, good bone-to-bone contact with bleeding bone should heal. The only place where I'm a little more cautious is navicular cuneiform joint as well as tarsal metatarsal joints. TMT joint, you know, published non-union rate is fairly low. In my hands, I seem to see a little bit higher non-union rate. You know, these are small, highly corticated bones. You break through that, you get into the marrow, and there's not a lot of marrow in that area. So I do tend to use uh, some type of spackling uh, whether it be BMA with mixed with aloe or auto, I do use a lot of autograft for the midfoot, whether it's calc or distal or proximal tibia. Uh, again, navicular cuneiform. Sometimes we see voids uh, when you start getting rid of that uh, medial and intermediate cuneiform navicular um, segment to get down a healthy bleeding bone. You can have a hard time closing that down, and rather than have gap formation where you've got a bridge to jump, I think filling that with some type of graft material is very helpful. Uh, virtually never augment uh, subtalar joint fusion. Um, ankle fusions at high risk, definitely I do. I think that's a bit of a different animal. TTC, yes, uh, augment, uh, particularly if these are patients, let's say, for example, on the left wing of um, you know, a, a TTC, whether that be uh, you know, they've had Taylor AVN or they're a Charcot patient or, or some major risk factor other than primary um, arthritis, primary osteoarthritis. Um, so Evans, something like Evans, uh, you know, I've run into this string of non-unions. I'm using one particular company's uh, proprietary uh, allograft product. Mm-hmm. And I have now, I think of my last seven, five of them have gone on to non-unions and 20 years of practice, mm-hmm. I can count on one hand, maybe one or two, three non-unions previously. 
just using an old uh, tricortical allograft iliac crest and augmenting mm-hmm. that with bone spurt. So, you know, right. you've got to wonder with some of these graphs and, and you hear some rumblings when you talk to experienced surgeons about some of these proprietary graphs, whether it's the treatment, whether it's where they're harvested from, the quality yeah. of the bone. Sometimes you look at those graphs and they're, you know, you can see through them. There's just paper thin bone yep. and, you know, it's all cortex with nothing in the middle and that structural support's good, but man alive, I'll tell you, it's, it's super disconcerting to get a non-union of an Evans when they're symptomatic, particularly as you start to see that distal segment of the calc start to kind of migrate dorsally. And, you know, after several months, sometimes they look healed and then you see them show up four to six months later and the fixation's broken and, you know, things mm-hmm. are all out of position and they're painful. I think that uh, I, I love most of what you said. I'm, I'm going to be on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm an autografter. For me, it's kind of like a, why don't I do it when I'm there and I'm right there? The risk of heel fractures or calcaneal fractures, or even if they're weight bearing at two weeks, um, a simple, a simple three CC, two CC plug out of the calcaneus is pretty low risk. I don't backfill or anything. So for me, calc autograph for MTP, and I'm not, I'm not over spackling. I'm not creating a gap. I uh, fill any small little voids and um, it's almost on reserve. So I'll do my, I'll do my main procedure first. It's not like at the beginning of the procedure and I kind of use it if needed. It's uh, Mm -hmm. MTP incision, you know, go down, you know, remove the cartilage and then uh, spackle where necessary and kind of put it at the the dorsal aspect of the first MTP right under the plate and kind of all around the joint surface. And then, um, so for first MTP, it's kind of a, <clears throat> a go-to for me. It's easy. It's quick. There's 12 different calcaneal autographed reamers and they all work really well. I haven't found one in particular that I, I have fallen in love with large. I'm not making a large incision on the side of the calc and cutting a square out and doing that fancy stuff. That's for a different story. For TMT, I agree with you. There's just not a lot of meat. It's not the calcaneus. And uh, when you're doing uh, uh, first or even second, third, primarily, is I think what you're talking about, the second and third can have a lot of cortical wall, like what you're saying, and just not a lot of meat to the bone. And so I will um, almost basically do like dowel graft reaming at that point. Mm -hmm. It's just take a plug, fill it with a plug like a slightly mm-hmm. oversized plug and just pack it and uh, just in, intend on secondary bone healing at that point. And then so are, you for, using, uh, are you using trephines for that? Or are you just sort of drilling yeah. and filling? Uh, trephine. So uh-huh. I'll kind of leave okay. the length there. And this is for non-deformity kind of stuff. Just leave osteotome top off the top off the TMT and then basically take a um, appropriately sized uh, reamer and then get this, use the same reamer and, and get, it in the, get it from the calc. I don't go to the tibia for that. And then just a standard locking or non-locking plate on top of it, not a, not a lag screw. I agree with you with the NC fusion. I mean, I think most of them I am probably doing for deformity purposes. So I definitely need bone graft in that, that area. Uh, I think the non-union rate is hovers between 16 and 20%. And it's, it's just not fun dealing with the medial column bone loss in that area. I, I agree with you. I think the NC joint is probably one of the harder joints to fuse that we we have to deal with. So definitely autographed in that area. And that most of the time, I'm probably doing an iliac iliac crest or fem head or something in the in the uh, NC joint area for 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 deformity correction. TN definitely filling the lateral side with calc autographed. And then once once I once I hit subtalar, 
Um, and there was a recent study in FAI, I think it was probably Glaze Brook, if I had to, someone could probably call me out on that, but um, looking at <clears throat> how much bone was used in primary joint fusions, how much of the joint surface healed after autografting for primary versus like revisions or, or any, any other type of case. The gist was that using primary autograph for a, or autograph for a primary case <clears throat> was uh, cost substantiated, I guess you could say. Some folks that work in a uh, tight center, and you could attest to this if you want, they use what is necessary if they're able to use it, not what's necessary because they have it on the back table all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so Taylor and ankle, I'm, I'm using proximal tibia if needed, um, not on a, you know, healthy post-traumatic or like a coalition resection in a 40 year old, but definitely a 65 year old flat foot medial double. The uh, that's, that's just packing. So let me ask you, know, you this. Can't sell us bone graft. point. <clears throat> Here's a question. Why the lateral TN joint? Um, like if, if you're talking about deformity where that medial side has been unloaded and gets a little soft and mushy and yeah. scary, yeah. why why the lateral side? Are you, is, is, are you going a medial approach? Are you going straight dorsal or like you straight, find that side harder to prepare? Or? I think that when I have seen, it's probably one of those gut check things where I've seen a couple non-unions, everyone treats their last complication like it's the worst thing in the world. It's always easier to mm -hmm. fixate. I do go dorsal. I just do usually one screw from pole into lateral, and then I'll actually mm -hmm. kind of like pierce the posterior tibial tendon and go through the post tib through the medial neck into the lateral pole instead mm -hmm. of going like two from distal to proximal. So, mm -hmm. and then plus or minus a staple on top. But for the most part, yeah. that kind of like uh, cross screw configuration, it works for me. But I think it's yeah. probably because I had a non-union at some point in my my short career, uh, half of yours. And I've kind of like treat my last complication, like it's the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, but when you do mechanically uncover, uh, or cover the talus, it leaves almost a gap there on that lateral side. I think that's probably mm -hmm. it. You know, it's interesting. I looked I at know, an article about a year and a half ago on distal tibial grafting. Cause you know, we just wasn't doing a lot of it. I just, I'd seen a case where a guy locally had pulled some distal tibial grafting and, and didn't drill the corners and got a huge unbelievable tibial fracture just from a distal tibial harvest that went all the way up through the diaphysis of the tibia. It was pretty crazy. And I started looking at some of the literature and there was an article out, I can't remember when it was, sometime in the late 90s by Conti. And it was interesting, they did 100, somewhere around 100 hind foot fusions. I think it was ankle and subtalar and TN. I don't remember if there's any midfoot included, but they, they quoted 100% union rate using distal tibial autograft. And I don't recall sort of what the comorbidities, if these were all primary arthritis or whether these were post-traumatics and different things. But I thought that was pretty impressive. You know, you always wonder what the quality is as you go more distal and some of the work that OFA and Columbus has done with higher and, you know, looking at osteoprogenitor cells as you go down the line. And I don't know, I, sometimes when I'm pulling cap graft, I, I pass these reamers and I pull it out and I take the cap off and there's absolutely nothing in it. And I drill this person you know, three or four times before I get anything at all. And then I go to a big curette because I'm not getting anything. And you sort of look at the mush inside and you're hauling out the calc. And, you know, I realize there's low morbidity. I mean, literature highly supports the use of them. It's just sometimes I don't think I'm getting as much as I'd like. 
how do you know when to go proximal tibia versus is it volume based or what do you what do you use it for your decision on that? Yeah, volume based. Volume based for me, uh-huh. and probably whether it's the third revision or fourth revision or you know how much mm-hmm. bone loss. So I mean, if it I when I jump to synthetics, it's either surgery center based cost or based on uh, yes, their their risk factors, and if if it is a lateral cal- uh, lateral column lengthening revision on a friend like i am probably using the kitchen sink and mm-hmm. plus or minus b and b mac and in some um local graft to augment are you and i yeah, alone in this autograph thing do you think like i, I don't know I, I seem like to no when i talk to no. people they're just throwing every little bit of product at and you know, aloe is the same as auto, and I, I I still don't buy it. I mean, if I had my own druthers, I would absolutely have autograph in my own foot. I would want autograph in my own foot as well. I, I um, now I'm not a smoker and I'm not diabetic yet, and I don't have those other issues. But I I think that the mesenchymal stem cell level in a purported perfect DBM style product. Whatever, with whatever mm-hmm. slap a name on it if, if it's purple it's better i guess or if it's green but mm-hmm. i still would want my own stuff i, I think most people would if, if you had to give people the option of hey i can use your own bone graft or do you want me to order what's on amazon and i'll squirt a little bit of blood in it and make it look pretty good what would you choose mm-hmm. probably yeah, no, your own stuff <clears throat> um let's talk about structural graft for a second tell me how go through your little algorithm of how, let's just say it's a TMT, it doesn't really matter. TMT, Evans, it, it doesn't really matter. How are you, like what type of, are you using a speci- are you using patella? Are you using femoral head? Uh, does it matter on the place? Do you go to a different hospital? Do you soak it in BMAC or BMA or PRP? Like tell me what you're, mm-hmm. and you're operating on like your friend what, or, you know, someone yeah, you know. Well, that's tough because that doesn't always work out in terms of cost, right? But I think it depends on the volume you need. You know, I do use a lot of proprietary wedges still. If I'm going to do those, I'm leaning more towards spackling them with autograft, whether it's calc or tibia. Um, I, you know, I like the fact that they're predetermined that they have measuring sticks that you can kind of see what the correction looks like under fluoro interoperatively and determine what you want. That's not to say that I don't use some iliac crest aloe and again, augment that. I'm not typically doing, you know, BMAC, a concentrated form, just because I, I'm afraid that there are times when we're seeing our patients that don't have coverage and they just get lambasted by the hospitals where they'll right. go after them for non-covered item. I think you and I talked before when I yeah. had once done an um, amniotic graft and it was considered mm-hmm. experimental and the patient got billed $20,000 despite being fully mm-hmm. insured and meeting their deductible. So some yeah. of these BMAX and things, they'll end up getting a bill for a couple thousand dollars out of pocket as a surprise. So I'll usually just pull some some BMA and and augment an allograft proprietary wedge with that. Um, if I'm doing something like a, you know, an old charco or something with a massive void, then a femoral head allograft. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if I can avoid using a fem head, I certainly will. But if I'm going to do okay. something like that, I'm going to drill it. I'm going to pack it with auto you know, soak it in BMA, whatever I can get my hands on. In those cases, probably, again, throwing the kitchen sink. If you could get, you know, BMP, true BMP, and I'm not talking about DBX, where they're saying there's BMPs and a full complement of DMBs. That's not real in my mind. You know, they can say in a lab there's a full complement. I think think you've seen, you know, in a practice 20 years, you know, this is the 400th tube of mush that's been 
sold to your surgery center and it's probably been on the shelf for six months. I mm -hmm. personally do not think that it has the same viability that either A, your own stuff has, or, or B, BMP slash uh, recombinant BMP would have, or, you know, growth factors, et cetera, uh, would have. So tell me, I'm interested I, to hear, I know you shared some stuff though, where you did like a, I think it was a TN fusion where the patient had almost no navicular left. Uh, I recall you did some type of structural graft. There was that aloe you used on that. You used a couple of big struts in there. Do you remember that? It was like a, so, I don't know if it was an or, old, like, yeah, uh, it was an old a navicular, navicular Taylor, navicular Taylor fracture. So we had basically a dead navicular on MRCT and clinical findings. And what, when you, you know, we get in there, you're like, okay, let's just start by taking out the hardware and seeing how you do. And you get in there and you've, you, we've all seen the sclerotic chalk. So that, that bone came out and <clears throat> so you're left with this huge void. And so I guess the plan was now, obviously, as you know, surgery center style, you have to be prepared for this. And this is something you, I'm sure Mike, you'd probably do in the hospital to uh, incur costs, <clears throat> uh, share, share the wealth. But I think that for me at that point in time, I had a femoral head available. Uh, what we used in residency with Rich Turner, he used a lot of patella. Patella was, um, a uh, hot item in, in, in a couple of years ago, just because of the thickness. I think it probably is too mm -hmm. thick. Um, but <clears throat> anyway, it, it's very, very stout. And so what we did was basically fashion a new navicular. I typically will core out the center, almost make like a, I don't know, combo or whatever food analogy you want to use. Uh, core out the center, stuff it with autographed calcar, distal tibia or whatever. And then um, basically all I want is the the outside, the outside cortical layer. I'll pummel it with a um, pulse lavage and get off all the whatever it's been sitting in for, for two months. Fresh frozen is usually the preferred, uh, not fresh, and then fashion it. And when I'm sawing, I'm you know using water to appropriately irrigate it, all, all the normal techniques. At this point, uh, after we've washed it off with the pulse lavage, I usually use a little ear sept on it and then pack it and soak it with uh, uh, BMA or BMAC, et cetera, and then place it, so. Yeah, it sounds fairly similar. I, I hadn't uh, hadn't considered using some of the, the washes. I think that's interesting. You know, I, mean, I think we soaked or I'm not using fresh frozen too often, but um, just even freeze-dried, you know, dead bone, it's, you wash it off and soak it and revitalize it, and then put your BMA and such in it. That's something to consider. It's a good pit, good pearl. Let's talk a little bit about unique ways to harvest bone. I think that's, we're always trying to integrate things in the operating room that allow for efficiency and allow for um, improved, you know, speed, efficiency, et cetera, with, with the uh, satisfying result of getting a large quantity of uh, BMA slash Cancellus bone graft. And so I think that one thing that I've been using recently, Mike, I don't know if you've had a chance to play with it, but the, you know, we're used to making kind of uh, cortical or decorticating or creating a corticotomy in the distal tibia or proximal tibia or even cow using a large um, curette and basically curetting out uh, however much bone you want. <clears throat> and I, I did that for a number of years and I just kind of got, my hands got worn out, my fellow's hands got worn out and we started to um, utilize a new um, device that allows for basically a, a suction that's hooked up to a curette. I typically will use this in more so the distal tibia and proximal tibia 
for volume-based reasons. Um, distal is about 10 to 15 cc's and then 20 to 30 for the proximal tibia. Because it, mm -hmm. it's nice because it creates a, a round hole. So there's a less chance of uh, fracture, but I use it for mainly TTCs is the go-to just surely based on volume. And then if they don't have a total knee, obviously, but um, you graph the, what's, uh, have you seen it? Joint? Yeah. You graph the subtalar and I the ankle joint if you're doing TTC or just the ankle. Definitely both. But I think the, the other thing um, is that I don't backfill it with any, you know, I, I understand that it's already a healthcare cost associated with it. So I'm going to, I backfill it with gel foam and I have zero complications, no hematomas. I just close, put one stitch in the periosteum and I've accidentally forgotten to put a stitch and it still works out, but I usually put one stitch in the periosteum and close sub Q and skin and you're fine. Uh, uh -huh. A little bit of issues with the knee scooter sometimes, not going to lie about it. Um, the staples are kind of pa a pain in the butt, but uh, nothing's perfect, but it, it works out pretty darn well. And you can sit in there for however long you need to get to get enough bone, but typically the time is probably in the two minute range, maybe one and a half to two minutes to get at least 15 cc's. But <clears throat> have you um, had an opportunity to check it out? Yeah, I've used it and I agree. There's some technique, you know, the ice cream scooper maneuver rather than just yep. kind of scraping, yep. you've got to really be cautious. And I think if you don't have a good size corticotomy there, uh, window, you can really pry, pry on that and, and create some issues with the, the bone. So when you go to put your piece back in, it doesn't always fit. I think it's important to put that piece back in, you know, but it's interesting. You mentioned you're getting you know, upwards of 20 cc's or maybe even more in some patients, depending on the size of their tibia compared to a calc where you're getting, you know, eight to 10 cc's. If you're lucky, I read a study years ago. Yeah, somewhere you're around, lucky. I can't remember the number nine cc's or something. It was kind of an odd number. I remember. So, yeah, I think high volume stuff, it's great. And, you know, the only other thing I would mention too is same with elderly people. I can remember uh, being a fellow and we do a, a proximal tibial graft in an older person, particularly in older females. If they have a history of osteoporosis and such, you can get in and find literally a hollow tibia. I mean, there's bone in there, but it's just yes, mush. No, I agree. And, and not good quality. So that'd be somebody maybe using that as a hybrid and mixing it, you know, with some chips yes. or something. Yeah, I think if anything, I'm 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 these days leaning more towards chips instead of the the syringe of putty stuff, the waxy uh, material. I mm -hmm. um I I agree. I just have, have the now from a preparedness standpoint, if residents are listening and stuff. I mean, when you're when you're setting up these cases, that's definitely something I'm requesting. All these things that we're talking about are are things that we're requesting ahead of time. I, I know Mike works at surgery centers and no surgery centers and hospitals and stuff. And that's something that rep would need to bring in uh, most of the time. So it's not something that typically lives at the hospital, which is fine. But from a preparedness standpoint for the, the uh, young guns out there to have, to have kind of the wherewithal of like, okay, I'm looking at a void. I'm possibly bone grafting. I'm possibly going to be using this and that. And I think that's, you know, the, the next you know, half hour segment is just how to prepare for this kind of stuff, I guess. But um, do you have any pearls for that kind of situation where you would, you're, you're, you're probably more of a surgery center style thing than me. Last couple of weeks I've run into this. And so you're exactly right. You've got to be prepared because even a hospital, I did a case last week and you know, they're, they're running short when you need some sort of big volume. Like I wanted to backfill the calcaneus because I absolutely hollowed out this calcaneus. Yeah. You know, whether it's necessary or not. And 
yeah. you know, get yeah. nice size croutons, they, they were short. You know, I needed yeah. 10, 15 cc's, and it was just not there. Um, so especially when you start crushing them down and, and packing right. them in there, right. that doesn't yep. go very far. So make yeah. sure you take a look um, ahead of your case, you know, week ahead, talk to your people and make sure that there's stuff even in the hospital on the shelves that you can use in a pinch. And particularly in ASCs, there's not a long shelf life on some of this stuff. And, you know, we mm-hmm. at our orthopedic center, we have our own ASC and there's, you know, cost considerations. And so be aware if you're working in ASC that sometimes you don't get reimbursed for these elements and you may want to do those at the hospital. So, but I, I, yes. I think it's important to have the reps uh, understand your pa- practice patterns and where you may be harvesting graft and may where you, where you may need to augment a little bit and make sure that they've got product with them. You know, you, you got to have your relationship with your people and know that they've got your back because the worst thing in the world, I absolutely have been there where thankfully we're right next to the hospital. And there's been a couple of cases where we've run over from the ASC and they've been, we've been able to kind of do a purchase sort of, you know, back and forth yeah. actually and vice versa from the hospital to our office. That's nice. That's nice. Cause that's, that is a booger when you're sitting there, it's, you know, 90 minutes or whatever it is. And, staff is looking at you like okay what do you do buddy and um like you said, yeah i mean yeah. I, I had a case once actually where i needed a huge structural graft um it was yeah. just a, a rheumatoid patient i got in and there, there was just the bone just melted away as i was prepping it there was just nothing there yeah. no structure and we didn't have anything in our freezer and so mm-hmm. they actually had to go to another hospital a sister hospital that was a 30 plus minute drive away to be able to get me something to work with you know so there's 30 minutes up, 30 minutes down, you know, it was a nightmare sitting there and there was just wow. nothing ideal to do in, in the interim. So what else do you do? You close it up and walk away for a different day. It's just, you really got to be prepared for yep. for those t- sorts of things. Same as we're ordering, we're ordering hardware. I mean, it's just, again, the next thing you have to think about when you're, when you're writing down on the little white slip of the products that you want for the case, or you're telling your fellow, Hey, order me this, this, and that for that case. All, all that stuff runs through your mind, um, Mike, you know, when you're, when you're booking the case, typically I would, I would think, you know, you see 50 people a day, you, you don't have time to think about it the day before usually. So uh, you if know, you think it, when we were fellows, order it. you've got your sheet, right? I mean, are you still using the yep. sheet like we had when we were fellows? Yeah. Maybe yep. talk about that a little bit. I think that that keeps me from forgetting stuff, to be honest with you, having the stuff there. I think that there's a lot to be said about your experience, and I really appreciate you coming on. I think this conversation will be valuable listeners that just kind of are afraid to use some bone graft. They're not really sure whether to use auto. And I think that we didn't really intend to sway people one way or the other. But currently, I think the pendulum is probably, generally speaking, swinging right now, currently in 2022, towards the auto direction until we get something better in our hands. And um, we're just figuring out how to do it better and faster to, to make this work for our patients. Thank you so much to both of you for sharing your experience and knowledge with us today. And to the listeners, we hope you'll join us next time. Until then, check out all of our episodes at podiatrytoday.com, Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platforms.